0: Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series on Bethany values, and we're going to be doing one more next week, but uh, today we're going to do our fifth value, which is people development, or you might just say discipleship, but we've called it people development. I want to share two illustrations with you, and they are very different, and they're going to seem entirely disconnected at first, but they're not, so bear with me. Shark Bay, Australia should perhaps consider a name change to Seagrass Bay since the largest resident isn't a great white predator, but a single seagrass meadow. After discovering that the whole bay's worth of seagrass spread from one seed and was all part of the same plant, it instantly became the world's largest plant, as large as 20,000 football fields. At 77 square miles, it's three times the size of Manhattan and could be 4,500 years old to boot. Jane Edgelow and colleagues took samples from several stalks from across Shark Bay. They wanted to find out how many individual plants make up this rich meadow that stretches for miles, spreads for 110 miles throughout the giant inlet. Edgelow said the answer blew us away. There was just one. That's it, just one Plant that has expanded over 112 miles in Shark Bay, making it the largest known plant on Earth. Another of the researchers said it appears to be really resilient, experiencing a wide range of temperatures and salinities, plus extreme high light conditions, which together would typically be highly stressful for most plants. But this one plant has survived and thrived. If you're from Canada, which you are, You're probably very familiar with aspen groves as well. You can have one united plant that can cover acres of hillside. Very similar. Whole ecosystems are benefiting from this massive seagrass plant. It is life-giving. It is fruitful. It is exponentially fruitful. One seed ended up creating something that's 77 miles long. It's what Jesus wants from each of us. In John 15, when he was ready to leave the earth and he was talking to his disciples about their future and the Holy Spirit coming and empowering them, he talked to them about how they would bear much fruit. And he didn't want it to be like a certain class of Christians. He meant it to be every Christ follower would be a very fruit-bearing individual. And remember when he's talking about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13, a little before this in, in his ministry, he talked about the kingdom of God beginning like a mustard seed and ending up being this great tree that birds would, would sort of house themselves in. And that's what he wants, not just for the kingdom of God, but every one of our lives is like that. But we don't start there, do we? We don't start there. I was reading this illustration And it kind of shocked me at first, which it probably will shock you a little bit as well. Speaking about the power of Christ to redeem sinners and build his church, what God starts out with. Russell Moore recently wrote, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest evangelists in history, I believe it was 18th century. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley, the father of Wesleyism, might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest English preachers of all time, might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo actually was. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around, and he seems to delight to do so. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church and fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything needed for her onward march through space and time. Now, I was a little shocked when I read that, but I want you to think about the early roots of Christianity, because it was likely like that. Part of the early church, particularly in the book of Acts right away, if you read through about Acts 5 or 6, you'll you'll read that many of the priests were were coming to faith. So Judaism populated the early church pretty significantly when obviously it was just in Jerusalem and Judea because that's Jewish territory. So part of it was Jewish. Jewish. And Jews, historically, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they have sort of an ethical and moral fabric, which is obviously much like Christianity, because Christianity is, in many ways, a subsect of Judaism. We have a Jewish Messiah. We have the common Old Testament. So Jews and Christians have what is known in the Western world as the Judeo-Christian ethic. We have a lot in common. But that changed pretty quickly. The majority of the early church came out of Roman polytheism. Those were absolutely pagan religions that involved in many cases temple prostitution and things like that. Radical change was required to take those kinds of people and transform them from the gospel of Jesus Christ or with the gospel of Jesus Christ into the church leaders that changed the world. So how can Jesus build his church and change the world ending with Christians who resemble a life-living organism like the seagrass, like a 77-square-mile seagrass plant? That's what he wants is people who are incredibly fruitful. Yet he's got to do that beginning with people who are often not moral or ethical or even good because that's what he did not necessarily as bad as they could be, but a reflection of a lost world. How does that happen? Well, I think we'd all agree we need a pretty significant transformation process for that to take place. And, and I think we'd all agree that transformation process has to happen with some level of speed since we all have limited lifespans. All right? Jesus doesn't have two or 300 years to make Paul into what he wants him to be. He's got a limited amount of time because Paul's not going to be around that much longer. And you're not going to be around that much longer either. So there needs to be a transformation process. It needs to happen with some speed. And and keep in mind Jesus didn't say when he was leaving the earth, go and make converts. He didn't say go and make people who just pray a prayer to receive me. He didn't say go and just get people to believe the gospel. He said go and make disciples, make learners, make people who will be what I am in many ways, ethically and morally. Paul said be imitators of me, even, I am, uh, even as I am of Christ. Jesus didn't want just people who say yes to the gospel. He wanted absolutely transformed, led by the spirit of God kinds of converts. If we believe we have a mission to change the world, we must believe in radically changed people that have to do it, and that has to be us. We need to be radically changed. I want to walk through a, a simple passage with you that actually is not about discipleship, it's about a bigger issue. Uh, it's, It's not about maturity per se, it's not about knowing God's word or praying or spiritual disciplines. Yet it is, because it's about initiative. It's about taking the opportunity that's in front of you or the lack of initiative, not taking the opportunity, wasting the opportunity that is your life Becoming all that it's intended to be. So I want you to turn to a book of Proverbs. Proverbs, this is on page 472. If you have a Bible in front of you, you just want to grab that. Page 472. And we're going to read the last part of this proverb. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. We're not gonna have a lot of points today. I made it really easy on the person who works with technology. Just a couple of points and a couple applications. You could read this passage written by Solomon, Proverbs 24:30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Now obviously the, the most direct application of this is about poverty coming from somebody who's not applying themselves. But I think we'd all agree that this can apply in many areas of our lives and that's what I want to do this morning. First, a neglected field, it's more than just a piece of land. Proverbs is, is a book which we would call wisdom literature. So you have Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon, um, Job. There are three or four wisdom literature books. It's mostly, this is mostly Solomon's work. So Solomon is, you know, the king of Israel, and uh, he's, he's one of David's sons. Its teachings apply to everybody. It's not necessarily a secular book, but you could read it, and it might look a lot like Aesop's Fables or other kinds of wisdom literature. Some of the things basically don't say much more than early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I mean, that's kind of there's stuff like that in Proverbs, which just seem like wise sayings, but you gotta understand it was not written from a secular standpoint it was actually sort of a training manual for moral development for young people in the palace. So this is meant to be sort of your your youth group curriculum, if you will, and and it would take young people and sort of put them through this curriculum. In fact, the key verse in the book of Proverbs is right away in chapter one, verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, becoming what God wants you to be, it just starts with the fear of the Lord. So you can read all kinds of Proverbs that seem rather secular, but again, against the backdrop, it all begins, our moral development begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom in the Bible basically has the idea of skill. If you almost just took the word skill and substituted every time you see wisdom, it's basically the skill of living within the commands of God, within the covenant of God that God had given to Israel, sort of the Ten Commandments and what surrounds it. And this passage is basically about indolence. It's about the person who leaves opportunity untended. So imagine Solomon. He's the king. We know Solomon to be a king with uh, some issues. He wrote a lot of stuff. He's a very wise man He also had like a thousand wives and concubines in his life, so we would say he had some issues. Israel was at peace. These were the good times. In fact, this may have been Israel at her best when some of this stuff was written. This is probably Israel at the height of its power and at the height of peace with her neighbors. Now, land has historically, you know, Israel was a country that was conquered by Israel. It's called the Promised Land. God had promised that land to Abraham. When it was conquered, as you recall, and you can see this, we'll probably do this in his story when we get back to that series uh, someday, When we get back to that, you'll see that when they conquered the promised land, they divided it among all of the 12 tribes. Well, Levites didn't have a piece of land, but they divided it among the tribes. The Levites lived among the rest of them and sort of served as their spiritual helpers. When they divided it among the tribes, it's not like it was owned by each tribal government it went from being divided among the tribes to divided among families or clans, and then families. In other words, it was distributed among the people. It would be much like when, you know, when uh, North America was developed, Not, you know, when the people came from Europe, and I'm not talking about the indigenous peoples, but when people came and believed in land ownership, and there's some interesting movies about that. One of them, uh, shoot, the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman movie. Is that Far and Away? Far and Away. My movie critics are here today. Awesome. Far and away. It's just a great movie. It talks about how, you know, people were given. It's much like that up here in this part of the world as well, where the government would say, you know, if you'll go settle a piece of property and, and actually homestead it, then we'll let you have that land. All right, so historically, let's go back to about 1900, just a few years before I was born, a few years before many of you were born. 1900. Do you know what percentage of people were connected to the land? 97%, roughly, were connected to agriculture, lived connected to a farm, or might live in a city, but connected to industry that related to the land. So about 97% of the population in North America was connected to agriculture in one way or another, and many of them living in rural towns and communities, many people selling implements to them, and so on. I mean, that was, that was the world we lived in. It was agricultural. Today, at most, it's 3%. Complete flip. Complete flip in the Western world. So the book, or the book of Solomon, yeah, the book of Proverbs, when Solomon wrote this, It's an era much like that in Israel. It's it's an agricultural economy, and people are connected to the land. Land was everything. Land was your livelihood. And farming, as you know, is very much a simple equation. You're sort of rewarded for your effort, aren't you? You know, I never have farmed, but I love gardening, and whenever I buy a home or get a little piece of land, and the last place we lived, we had 10 acres, and I had like Bow hunting stands all over it, and, and I develop that land as much. I plant trees. I can't help it. Do you know who you plant trees for? Not for you. You plant trees for the next owner, usually, because you don't live to enjoy them often. But you develop it, and farming is like that. You're always rewarded for your effort to some degree, and you're sort of creating a legacy for the next person, for other generations. And in Israel, this was precious. This was the promised land. And no ground was wasted in this sort of semi-arid part of the world. Stone fences, because it's sort of an area full of limestone. People would pick up the limestone like some of us did when we were kids at our uncle's farm. I remember this. You know, the little sled behind the tractor. And you're taking rocks out of the field and putting them on that sled. Anyone else ever? done that. I see he did. Yeah, he's smiling. All right, he did it. It was probably child abuse, wasn't it? Making us do that? Yeah, exactly. But it was all legal. That's what you do to farm kids. It's all legal. Breaking all the child labor laws. I'm very sympathetic to that. I'm sorry. Anyway, it's good character. All right, so you know they take these stones and it's a limestone part of the world sort of and they build fences with them. So those were the boundary markers. Those were people's lot lines are these stone fences. Nothing's wasted. Your land was your life. Your land was a generational legacy. So Solomon, the king, is surprised when he's out, you know, doing his kingly things, taking his kingly walk with his kingly entourage. And he walks by one well-groomed field after another. Just one after another where obviously the people cared and there's not a lot of weeds, and the crops are healthy. And then he comes to a field, which is also a vineyard. So either there was a field with a vineyard, or more likely, Hebrew parallelisms, often it's when the writer of Psalms or Proverbs will say one line, and then another that sort of clarifies it. They're kind of synonymous. So this seems like the field is a vineyard. It's a vineyard for sure, that was completely neglected and to own a vineyard in that part of the world, that culture. And that was was a sign of some wealth. But this was neglected. Thistles, nettles abounded. You know, he's got the the seeds are grabbing. You know what nettles are like. They just grab onto your legs. He's probably got his robe on. They're grabbing onto his robe and sticky. The stones from the fence kind of been toppled over and they're rolling down into the rows of vines. The rows of vines are not as discernible as they actually should be. Because of all the weeds, thistles, nettles, the vines are not pruned, which means you you look at the vines and they're relatively unproductive. They're there. They're alive. You could tell it's a vineyard. But there aren't really many grapes there. Nothing's being tended. And so I imagine Solomon, he's looking for some material for his book, you know. He's up to chapter 24, verse 29. He went on a walk thinking, I'm going to get some good material for my book. He stops when he sees this field. He tells his part of his entourage, Would you stop the camels and water them? Please give some water to my thousand wives and concubines as well. Just imagining. And then Solomon sits down and he writes these verses. He knew what he saw it was not about land. It was not about what it looked like. It wasn't about land or stones or thistles or vines. He, he, he knew there's something behind that and it's actually about the landowner. And about a person who doesn't fully take advantage of the opportunity that is his life and what he has. Which is our second point, a neglected field is a lesson in human behavior. So the text seems to indicate that he sort of stopped He says, when I saw it, I reflected upon it, I looked, and I received instruction. It's like I'm sitting down, and I'm letting the picture in front of me inform me and teach me. So it indicates that he stopped, he sort of studied, he pondered, he meditated on it, and he had some thoughts about it. And he knew the issue. It's stated multiple ways in the text. The owner or steward of the land just didn't didn't take care of it. He didn't tend to it. He was passive. He has this incredible piece of property. And he's sleeping when he should be awake. He's playing when he should be plowing. He's wasting opportunities during the growing season. He's off doing something else. And this great legacy that he has is sitting in a terrible form and shape. And so Solomon's thinking... He doesn't know what he has. This is the promised land. This is the land that was promised to our great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. That we would occupy it. And it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. This person doesn't know what he has. He's not stewarding what he has. He's also not connecting effort with outcome. He's not a very wise individual. He lacks sense which is what the first verse says. A man lacking sense. And this person is going to lose out on the life and the legacy he was intended to have because of it. Now this passage, obviously its first application is material in nature to some degree. You know, it's like you don't go to work, you're probably not going to benefit. You know, you, If you don't take care of stuff, you don't steward it, you're, you're not going to get a good outcome. But it really applies to just about everything. Work, money, relationships. You don't put anything into it, you're not going to get as much out. Your health, you don't put anything into that, you're definitely going to get some bad outcomes. Your relationship with God. I'm not the first person to talk about this and your relationship with God. John Ortberg wrote a sermon about this. He said a little while ago, my wife kidnapped me, took me to Napa Valley for a romantic overnight getaway for just the two of us. I'd never been to Napa Valley before. It's lovely. And what struck me as I was going past the vineyards was all of the thought and action that went into the rows of vines. A fruitful, productive vineyard is a thing of beauty. But here's the thing about vineyards. They don't just happen by themselves. Vineyards don't just spring up by accident. Somebody is behind them. And the writer of this passage says, I was going past a vineyard and it was a mess. There were thorns all over the place. The grounds were covered with weeds and the walls were falling down. To understand the angst behind this proverb, you have to understand that in the Middle East, In the ancient Middle East, a piece of land capable of growing crops was one of the most valuable things in the world, and to be the owner of a vineyard was to be blessed with the opportunity of a lifetime. Everybody gets a vineyard. When you were born, you got a vineyard. You got your body, you got your mind, your will, some relationships. You got financial resources, the chance to do some good work. You got a soul. Everybody gets a vineyard and that vineyard is your one and only shot on this planet. It's the opportunity of a lifetime, and you don't even have to care for it on your own. God will partner with you. Nonetheless, God never forces anybody to take action and care for their vineyard. The writer of this proverb says, I was walking past a vineyard, and I thought of what it might have been. He sees that the vineyard could have been a thing of beauty. It could have been a source of pride and joy and income. It could have been a blessing to everyone around it because in ancient cultures, a place that grew things that people could eat or drink was, uh, from was a blessing to everyone. But the vineyard the writer observed wasn't any of those things. It fell tragically short of what it might have been. And the writer wonders why. Was there some catastrophe? Was there a drought, a flood, a fire, or some other disaster? No, no, because the other vineyards around it didn't look this way. It was just sheer negligence on the part of the owner of the vineyard. He had no idea what he had. He was throwing away the opportunity of a lifetime. That's the strange power of entropy. It's not even a thing. Entropy is just neglect, and people throw their lives away because of it every day. People have these fantasies, I want the perfect marriage, I want the perfect circle of friends, I want the perfect career and the perfect education, and if I can't have that, then I won't do anything. The writer of Proverbs says we must start with reality. Work the land that is your land, your body, your life, your relationships, your work, because that vineyard is all you have. If it's ever gonna be different, it won't be because the vineyard fairy comes and sprinkles fairy dust on it. It will be because you asked God to help you. It will be because you've asked him what is the next step that you want me to take in my life to have the life that I was intended to live. How are you, title of that act, interesting was Intercepting Entropy, how are you stewarding your spiritual life and development, your vineyard? You have a gift. You know God. If you're here, you're probably already in a relationship with God through Christ or you're open to it. You know God, we believe we have the truth, we believe you have the blueprint for the lives that God wants us to live. He wants you, he wants me to change the world. And to do that, he wants to change us. He begins with very imperfect people and he transforms them. And then they continue the process by connecting with other imperfect people, not that we ever become perfect because we don't, I'm a prime example of that, we don't. We just keep moving a little closer to the goal. We never get there till heaven. But he takes imperfect people. He starts to change them. They connect with other imperfect people. He starts to change them. It's called the body of Christ. The value that we have relates to this is people development. It's up on the screen there. Very simple. We believe that discipling people, developing them, into their full potential as Christ worshipers is the best way to expand God's influence in the world. It's gotta be all of us. The the passages about reaching the world were not for the clergy or, or people who work at church. It includes them, but it's for all of us There's not a distinction made in the New Testament about the goals that God has for a certain group of people versus the rest. And the Protestant Reformation hundreds of years ago said there's a priesthood in every believer. We all have access to Christ. We all are gifted to make a difference in the world. So how does that happen? How do we develop people? Well, I was... At this point in my message yesterday, Saturday is always a work day to some degree for me, I finish my message on Saturday and get the points off to the PowerPoint people and so on, and I was walking in, went in my bedroom, my wife's laying on the bed, and I think she was taking a little rest, and, and, she said, and I said, well, I'm at page whatever in my sermon, I'm all the way up to the applications. She said, what's the sermon about? I said, well, it's about people development. And she said, well, should I just tell them how I developed you? That is a true story. <laughs> and then she started actually giving me points, like in subpoints to this. And, and she warned me today, if I say anything that's not true from the story, she might come up here, storm the stage, and tell the truth. So we're not going to go there. But she did say that, which should scare every man in here. There might be a woman sitting next to you who's, you're her project, man, and she's been working it, and you might not know it. All right, all right. So people development, how does this happen? We get back to the Bible. Okay, first... The standard needs adjusting. The standard needs adjusting. Jesus wants Christ-like, life-tested, martyrdom-willing, fully committed disciples. That's the truth. From a variety of passages of Scripture, that's the truth. Now let's take our lives, measure it up against that. Because we as a church... I'm not talking about Bethany Chapel, I'm saying We as the broader church need to up the standard a little bit about what we're trying to create in us. We're often aiming at the wrong goal. Do you know what I want out of Christianity personally? I mean, I do want that, but you know what I want kind of in, the, in my flesh a little bit, in my humanity? I want to add Jesus to my already existing pretty good life and hope that he benefits that life a little bit more. I mean, isn't that what we really want? We sort of want Jesus to be the extra in our life that, that deals with the extra problems we have, but in reality, we've got pretty good lives anyway. You know, what's interesting about this is it kind of reminds me of this uh, they've done uh, statistical analysis of Christians in other countries versus Christians in like the West and how Christians in other countries are looking forward to heaven. But we're not. See, because a lot of Christians in other countries are persecuted or they're so poor they can hardly live, so heaven really is gonna be a better place for them. We look at heaven, we're like, man, not yet, all right? This is pretty good down here. But that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity was born into persecution and a lot of tension. And In the book of Acts, the question is whether it's even going to be a religio licita, a legitimate religion, or whether they're all going to get persecuted and lose their lives. That's why Paul's on trial in Rome, to kind of prove that it should be a legitimate legal religion. We're aiming at the wrong goal. Jesus wants a world-changing movement led by people with that kind of character, and I just want Jesus... To help me pay my bills and stay a little healthier and live a little longer and have a little better marriage. That's what I want Jesus for, just a better life with all the good stuff I already have. He wants maturity. Maturity, real maturity. Christ-likeness. Romans 8, Paul talks about how the goal of suffering in that case, but the goal of Jesus is to conform us to his own image. We're connected to Jesus. The Spirit of God is constantly applying the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to our lives, trying to change us so that we're like Christ in our ethics and our morals and our behaviors that reflect the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the works of the flesh. That's that's a pretty major goal because what do we have to offer the people around us if we aren't becoming those kinds of people so that's what he wants he wants sort of life tested people and what i'm talking about there is primarily suffering transformation comes through suffering it's like hgh for christians that'd be human growth hormone for those who've never lifted weights human growth hormone for christians and i've never taken it by the way in case you're wondering That's what God wants. He wants life-tested people because those kinds of people can stand up to difficulty because they've had difficulty in their lives. And so when persecution comes, nothing's new to them because life hasn't been easy for them. They've suffered, therefore they can stand up under pressure. He wants martyrdom-willing people. That was and is the initial call of Jesus. If anyone wants to follow me, what does he need to do? He needs to take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. What do you mean take up your cross? He means be willing to go through the same thing he went through. He said if they treat the master this way, they're going to treat the servant this way. In other words, if I've got to die, there's a chance you're going to die too. We don't know what that's like. We don't live in a world like that. But there are a lot of Christians who do live in that world. And more people have died for their faith in the last century than in all the other centuries combined. Did you know that? It's an unsafe place for faith in many parts of the world. It's becoming a little less safe here too, but it's been an unsafe place in other parts of the world for a long time. Instead, what are churches producing today? What are we reproducing and producing today? My concern Just getting people committed to the truth of this book is a challenge. How are we gonna change the world if we have to keep arguing that this is true? How are we gonna change the world when so much of Christianity is now under the the definition of what we call de-churched? Well, we tried the church thing and that's full of messed up people. Of course it is. Of course it is. But you can't like abandon the one ship in the ocean that's meant to be the rescue ship for all of humanity just because you don't like everyone on it. The ark might have been stinky, but it was the only ship floating at one point. The church is stinky, but it's the only ship floating. We've got so many people who've given up on church, how are they gonna reach their friends and neighbors? You're going to bring them into the church of them. People who've given up on the idea of absolute truth. We struggle as believers to believe what we must believe to be believers. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. In 1889, American journalist and humorist Edgar Nye introduced the phrase, a mile wide and an inch deep. We've all heard that phrase. We've used it. He was referring to a river found uh, in the Midwest down in the U.S. It's called the Platte River. The Platte is a muddy, wide, shallow, meandering stream with a swampy bottom. And these characteristics made it too difficult to ever be used as a major navigation route. Now, today, you probably don't care about that with rivers, but think about what rivers were in the past. They were major trade routes, major navigation routes. A river was useless if you couldn't take a pretty big boat on it. Now we look at them as a way to, you know, fish or swim or recreate, have a nice scene. Though the Platte is an important tributary in the Missouri River watershed, it was disqualified from use because of its lack of depth. Nye wrote that the river had a very large circulation but very little influence. Covers a good deal of ground but it is not deep. In some places it is a mile wide and three quarters of an inch deep. That's where we get the phrase and we say it to people who just to have a very surface knowledge of something, a surface commitment to something, we say yeah, kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. That's how the phrase was born. We can't afford that as a church. And if you're tending the vineyard, which is your life, it can't be the goal. The goal isn't just to know who Jesus is and to get heaven at the end. The goal is to be Christ-like, life-tested, martyrdom-willing, fully committed disciple that changes the world. That's the goal. That's what God wants. Second, discipleship is a complex process. And the bad news for you is the disciple controls most of it. It's also the good news. What makes us grow? What makes us hit the target of Christ-like, life-tested, martyrdom-willing, fully committed disciple? Well, I can think of a few things. So I'll, I'll name off a few and there might be more. Bible exposure, so Bible exposure, whether that's sermons that you listen to, which you know, hopefully, hopefully we're modeling good hermeneutics and you're connected to a text and it means what it says and you get that, your own Bible reading or Bible study, whatever you do to get Bible exposure, listening to preaching, all of those, Bible exposure, exposure to truth. God uses that as ammunition in our lives Uh, Jesus said what sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth we need the Bible You got to have the right standard obedience obedience how much of it do we put into practice once we know the right thing to do service service I I could I've got an illustration here I could read it I'm not going to because I'm committed in my heart today to letting you out at the right time since the last two weeks have been pretty bad but service, or people surveyed would say that serving in, you know, with their gifts in ministry, it has a profound impact on their growth as much as prayer or Bible study. A lot of people would say that. It's profound how much when you put yourself in service, it impacts spiritual growth. Prayer, we're gonna talk about that next week. Community, loving community, being connected to other Christians, it bolsters our faith. Suffering, suffering is an incredibly important part of our faith, it's not one we look for, but actually it really does help us grow. And there may be more, but if you look through that list, which I haven't given you, but I just said it, if you look through that list, you control five of six of them completely. You control Bible exposure, obedience, service, prayer, community. You might not control suffering, but you control five out of six major influences on your spiritual life completely. Your spiritual future is like a piece of land. It's a vineyard. And five of the six things that make a vineyard successful are done by the farmer. He just doesn't control the rain. He can do everything else. He doesn't control the rain. We as a church provide opportunity for most of what you need. We provide opportunity for most of what these things, Bible exposure, we don't control obedience, service, prayer, loving community, suffering. If you're in ministry, you get suffering from the church as well. You get all of it. We provide opportunity for much of what you need, but we don't control what you do, and we don't control God's part. A lot of it's up to us. The question is, are you committed to the vineyard that is your spiritual development? Because it's largely in your hands. You know, it's hard to stop bad habits. And it's really hard to start good habits. People don't change easily. None of us do, I don't. None of us change easily. We we become sort of ingrained with with who we are and we get stuck. And when we get stuck in this area as we create this dilapidated life that Solomon saw in the vineyard. Here's an article about how hard it is for us to change. An article from the magazine Fast Company It says, change or die, what if you were given that choice? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make difficult and enduring changes in the way you think and act? And if you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered most? According to the article, the odds are nine to one that you will not change, that I won't change, even in the face of certain death. Think about that. You're told to change or you'll die, Nine to one, we won't. You know, there's actually statistical analysis on this. The author based that statistic on a well-known study by Dr. Edward Miller, the dean of the medical school and CEO of the hospital at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Miller studied patients whose heart disease was so severe they had to undergo bypass surgery, a traumatic and expensive procedure that can cost more than $100,000 if complications arise. Whole bunch of people have that surgery every year here and in Canada, the US, the procedures temporarily relieve chest pains but rarely prevent heart attacks or prolong lives. About half the time, the bypass grafts clog up in a few years, the angioplasties in a few months. So, these are really expensive surgeries that aren't lasting in patients hardly at all. Why? The causes of this so called restenosis are complex. It's sometimes a reaction to the trauma of the surgery but many patients could avoid the return of pain and the need to repeat the surgery, not to mention alter the course of their disease before it kills them, by switching to healthier lifestyles. But nobody will, very few do. Miller summarized his research on patients' inability or unwillingness to change their lives this way. He said, if you look at people after coronary artery bypass grafting two years later, 90% of them haven't changed their lifestyle. That's been studied over and over and over. So we're missing some link here. Even though they know they have a very bad disease, they know they should change their lifestyle for whatever reason, they can't. We're talking about your heart. And nine to one after heart surgery, people won't stop doing the things, eating the things, not doing the things they should do that would give them a longer life. Why is that? Because we don't change easy. We don't. When we're talking about our character development, our moral development, people development, I just wanna close with this. Like, What's the one or two things that you know that you should be doing or should be doing more or should start or should stop that you just hang on to and need to change? What's the one or two things just start with one of them. Not in 2025, maybe this week. Start with one. Jesus wants Christ-like, life-tested, martyrdom-willing, fully committed disciples. And even though it's a complex process, you have control over it. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, you've given each one of us a vineyard. There's so much potential in the lives of every one of us in this room. Regardless of where we're at in the journey, regardless of our age, we, we can all be superstars in, in this issue of giving our lives to you, fully committing ourselves to you, so that we can be used by you in whatever way you seem fit, wherever you placed us. Help us to cooperate with that, help us to just be better, especially in the areas that are simple that we just don't do. Help us to be better, help me to be better,